BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free... Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the race in my members-only inner circle club. You will receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here's a special offer to my podcast listeners. If you join the inner circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership, I'll send you a free, personally autographed copy of my book, Gettysburg, and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com. Use the code FREEBOOK at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com. Code FREEBOOK. This offer ends January 31st. An unfairly discharged Marine with a dark secret. A brilliant intelligence officer recovering from tragedy. This unlikely pair are brought together to stop a deadly Russian plot against the heart of the American system. Number one, New York Times bestselling authors Newt Gingrich and Pete Early return with a new series filled with action and intrigue that captures the tensions and divides of America and the world today. Collusion, a novel by Newt Gingrich. Available on Amazon.com and Audible now. On the second episode of Newt's World... I think this is probably the biggest congressional scandal going back 30, 40, 50 years. We don't know how bad this scandal really was and may still be. A member of Congress has the ability to hire anyone they want to be on their staff. If a member of Congress says, I trust this person, I know this person... 
they can opt out of doing a background check. He must have thought if this scandal came out involving 40 or more Democrat uh, members of Congress, that might mean we would lose the majority. This is a story about a computer hack on the House of Representatives. It involves an IT guy who was born in Pakistan named Imran Awan. We're digging into the case of Imran Awan, an information technology specialist and shared employee in the U.S. House of Representatives. The story begins in 2004, when Awan becomes employed by members of Congress to service their information technology needs for their offices. Over time, he builds a rapport and gains more clients based on word-of-mouth recommendations. At one point, he's working for 40 members of Congress as a shared staff, information technology employee, and billing over $100,000 a year to multiple offices for his services. He even hires his family members, who have little to no IT experience, to work with him. Then, on February 3, 2017, the Chief Administrative Officer of the House of Representatives, together with the Sergeant-at-Arms, issue a memo with the subject, quote, revoking IT and physical access for identified shared employees, close quote, with the time frame of urgent. The memo lists the following five employees. Rao Abbas, Hina Alvi, Imran Awan, Jamal Awan, Abid Omar Awan. Upon receipt of this urgent memo, most members of Congress took steps to release Imran Awan and his family members from their positions effective immediately. Something in their actions had caused House leadership to become concerned, but little was known about what had happened at the time. The story you're going to hear today is that of one of the biggest cover-ups in Congress in many years. It is the story of a young man who, through his relationship with members of the House, takes advantage of his access to congressional servers. Some have accused Awan of causing a hack from within the House. Others say nothing happened. Which side will you believe? I'm joined today by my guest, Luke Rosiak, an investigative reporter from The Daily Caller, whose new book, Obstruction of Justice, is available at bookstores now. Patrick Sowers, a former IT specialist who worked in the U.S. House of Representatives at the same time as Imran Awan, and Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas, who was one of the early voices in Congress to follow the evidence and ask tough questions about what had really happened. First, joining me is Luke Rosiak. Luke, you've been doggedly investigating and reporting on this story for two years. Tell us what you've uncovered. This is a story about a computer hack on the House of Representatives. It involves an IT guy named Imran Awan. So Imran Awan is a guy who comes over from Pakistan uh, at the age of 17 under the Versi lottery. And of course, his whole family follows under chain migration. And as I learned what happened, and I was really one of the only reporters who noticed this little press release uh, that occurred during the inauguration of Trump, and I followed the trail back to a hack during the 2016 election that none of us really heard about. And it really exposed the ongoing tremendous vulnerability of Congress to cyber threats and blackmail that uh, could very well be going on to this day. How does he make a transition 
to being the IT guy in the U.S. House. He puts himself through community college in Northern Virginia and then through Johns Hopkins. And while he's finishing up at Johns Hopkins University with a degree in IT, he starts working as a contractor for a company in the House of Representatives. But Congressman Robert Wexler of Florida hires him. Imran Awan winds up cutting out the middleman and starting working for this congressman directly. No, no contractor relationship. And after that, the members of Congress, in particular Robert Wexler, really protective of this guy. They really took Imran Awan under, under their wing. And so these early congressmen, Robert Wexler of Florida, Javier Becerra of California, now Attorney General, um, you know, Gregory Meeks, New York. What they would do is uh, Imran Awan cobbled together a salary working for several members on a part-time basis. Um, and eventually, he started earning as much as a congressman. These employers, they would encourage new congressmen, newly elected freshmen, to put this guy on their payroll. And, and when he couldn't make any more money on the ha- under the House rules, they started attributing the paychecks to his relatives. So you saw his brother and his younger brother, who was only 20 years old. Well, I mean, under the, under the rules of the House, you can have shared employees. It happens all the time. And, and a member can decide with two or three other members to achieve something, Let's, for example, to do research or to uh, represent a particular issue, or in this case, to get information technology assistance. Uh, part of what makes the, the Awan case amazing is ultimately, I think there are 40 members who are involved in this. Now, that, that's a number that is I've never seen before in this kind of a shared relationship. When you get to that level, it's pretty clear that a substantial number of them have no idea what he's doing. That that he's not it's not a big enough part of their operation, and just they sort of forget about it. And it, so he's there drawing the money, supposedly doing the job, and presumably he did do the job. The question was what else he was doing with the level of access he had to forty different members. A given congressional office really isn't that big, right? I mean, you're talking about like fifteen staff with a budget of around a million dollars a year, and you don't really need a full time IT guy to administer a staff of fifteen, and so they share. I mean, from their standpoint, they, they not only got the lottery in terms of being able to emigrate to the United States, they then hit the lottery in terms of being able to exploit the U.S. government. The problem is they were putting, uh, by all appearances, no-show staff on the payroll to circumvent the rules. And so there were disclosures that were telling members that this guy was making as much as the chief of staff or as much as congressmen themselves. And then they could also really see that all of his relatives were on the payroll. And so what starts to emerge is, you know, a ghost employee scheme is what they call it. Um, but there were also more than enough red flags and disclosures that were made to congressmen. And just a lot of people knew that what was going on here was totally abnormal. And in the end of the day, this one family took $7 million, supposedly for administering service, but most of them didn't even have any background in computers. I think what will surprise people... Uh, is in your reporting, you gradually discovered that there's an entire family network. Can you describe how Imran ultimately engaged his entire family to live off the U.S. taxpayer? Basically, Imran was the one with IT skills, and he was the one doing most of the work, um, but he made it so that members of Congress put his relatives on the payroll, even though they never saw those people. So you have his brother, Abid, 
uh, who, you know, just had a high school degree. You have his other brother who is only 20 years old making $165,000 a year. I mean, that's the only 20-year-old in Congress who's making 165k a year. And, and isn't one of them actually a McDonald's employee? Now, Raul Abbas works at McDonald's. He's got nothing to do with technology. That's against the rules on the part of the member. The members of Congress individually hired each of these, each of these people. And almost none of them had any background in IT. And so it's a ghost employee scandal, a $7 million one. And so part of what people need to realize is that members of Congress, in theory, are legally responsible for having signed a document, which is actually a federal felony, if, uh, if it's false, that says, I have hired this person who's done this job, therefore they're getting this money as a method of protecting it. So theoretically, you start with a level of defense of the individual congressman none of whom were sanctioned in any way after $7 million. What we had was when they were buying computer equipment, they would change the prices so that everything cost or was reported as costing $499, which was just underneath the threshold. In theory, one of the protections of the system is if you buy something above $500, it shows up initially, it gets reviewed, you know what it is, it has, it has some kind of identity number. And what they were doing was deliberately gaming the system by coming in just below the level at which it would be noticed. But, but didn't they in one case come in like for 800 items? Yeah, it was like hundreds of items and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So by changing the invoices and falsifying vouchers, falsifying federal documents, they made it so that everything showed up as being less than 500 bucks. And therefore, it didn't have a barcode and it wasn't tracked. Didn't you report that one office actually... Just in one office had $15,000 in equipment missing. Yvette Clark, congresswoman from Brooklyn, she had a tenth of her annual budget go missing. That's $120,000. And these offices have a budget of around $1.2 million a year. $120,000 went missing worth of technology equipment. And this is like big screen TVs, like 68-inch big screen TVs that have just walked off. The idea that $120,000 walked off is completely insane. And so we're following the clues from the $7 million financial scheme to this systematic falsification in the house, and then we get to the hack. And so this came to light from several strong women who were, by and large, Democrats and who had the courage to kind of stand up and tell the truth when no one else did. Wendy Anderson, who worked for Yvette Clark, the congresswoman from Brooklyn, and she was the deputy chief of staff. She concluded that the chief of staff was conspiring with Abid Awan, the IT guy's brother, to steal all this equipment. And she said so. And what happened then? Yvette Clark tried to make the problem go away. Um, she actually, you know, the chief of staff, a guy named Shelley Davis, who was implicated by his own deputy as, you know, being a thief. And next thing you know, he's out on the street. He's not working there anymore. But she doesn't really say anything public about it. I'm as disappointed in the Republican leadership of the House as the Democrat because this wasn't... I mean, Obvious things are, you know, it's like having a large buffalo run through your office and ignoring it. I mean, the number of things going on here that with any reasonable, serious attention to the public trust and the public good would have led to decisive investigations. Absolutely. And when this uh, deputy chief of staff, this courageous whistleblower working for uh, Democratic Congresswoman Yvette Clark, when she comes forward and when they uncover all these invoices that are systematically falsified, the inspector general of the House of Representatives gets involved. The IG happens to be someone with a tremendous cybersecurity background. And she says, all right, well, we definitely got these guys on 
on fraud um, because the invoices are falsified. And there's been a lot of talk later, oh, the, the FBI is involved, we're investigating for two years. Think about this. You've got this financial document you're submitting in the house, and it says that a $2,000 computer costs $499. That's fraud. So the IG says, you know, we got fraud. But these guys are IT guys. Obviously, the much more frightening thing here is the capa- the potential that they abuse their the access that they had. Now, as systems administrators, they could read and even modify any file that the members of Congress they worked for or their staffs had anywhere on their servers or hard drives, any email. They could even send emails as a member of Congress. So there was just a tremendous uh, potential for harm here. Ghost employees are nothing new in the House, and it's happened off and on for probably the whole history of the House. But it is illegal, and uh, the creativity of this group in the sheer number of ghost employees. And a ghost employee, essentially, is a person who's being paid but isn't showing up. And so, in effect, uh, there's no real person there, which is why they're called a ghost. But in this case, you have a very sophisticated effort to maximize the money by, by having an entire family network engaged. Can you just explore for a minute how they were setting this up? They would typically get the members of Congress to put Imran Awan on their payroll for like 500 bucks or something really, really small. And that was enough to create a login for him so he could do all the work. But then he would get the member of Congress to put someone else on. And they basically got complete control of the House's HR system. I mean, Imran Awan can strut into that office at any time and he'll be in the congressman's office for an hour. How does an IT guy get to be so important? He somehow had the ability to convince members of Congress to put all these people on their payroll. And so they admitted later, like, you know, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver admitted on audio, I don't know this guy that works at McDonald's. Imran Awan does all the work. And so that's against the House rules uh, because Imran Awan wasn't on his payroll. And so it's especially funny because, you know, kind of big picture here, hacking is a huge deal and needs to be taken seriously. But the problem is, at the same time, they had this extremely, extremely cavalier, at best, you know, approach to cybersecurity in the House. And this went on for a decade where they're given all full access to their computers, to people with no training in cybersecurity. Um, the policies existed, you know, that you got to give an, a background check to IT guys. And every one of these members of Congress who hired Imran Awan and his family, they exempted them. Correct me if I'm wrong. What we know is he gets people to hire his family. People pay no attention to them because they trust them. And they then branch out from just stealing money on, on ghost employees into stealing money on technology theft. And then they may or may not have gone into hacking. The Democrats don't want to expose it because they have 40 members involved. The uh, Republicans, for some reason, are comatose. It's almost like a Russian novel. I mean, you have this thin thread of honest people, among whom are the inspector general, surrounded by people who are methodically avoiding discovering the truth, and, and then using their institutional authority to say, since we can't discover the truth, there mustn't be any truth, because we're the FBI and you should trust us. What I want to move to is, you, so you've got these guys who've been hired as ghost employees, they've now learned how to steal technology money, and ironically, as the Democratic National Committee is being hacked, the chair of the Democratic National Committee is probably the strongest defender of Imran in the House. And would you talk about her relationship and how that, that this also, and this by itself would be a, a novel. So this started way back in 2004 and Imran Awan made inroads through the Florida delegation 
Robert Wexler, who's no longer in office. And then he very quickly jumped over to then newly elected Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And from then on, she was kind of one of his biggest defenders, probably the biggest advocate. Wasserman Schultz really, really takes this guy under, under her wing and forcefully encourages newly elected freshmen as she ascends into the ranks and becomes eventual chairman of the DNC. When you're a freshman and you're kind of a backbench guy who's new to Washington, she says, look, just put this guy on your payroll. Just do it. And they do. And so that's one of the ways that he helps get this $7 million. So you have Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Florida, congresswoman, head of the Democratic National Committee. The Democratic National Committee is about to be hacked. She trusts totally in Imran Awan and his family and is protecting them. And then she gets involved in this thing. Right. And so the stuff about the theft started coming up in late 2015, really early 2016. By March of April 2016, they had an inspector general investigation going on into the theft. And they very quickly found that these guys, the whole family, was logging into members' emails accounts using members of Congress's personal email addresses and, and credentials and passwords. But they were even logging into members of Congress that they didn't work for. And so they were logging in uh, to members who had previously fired them. And obviously, I thought of retaliation. Are they mad they got fired? Why, are they, why would you log in to someone who fired you? Why would you log in later? A lot of very, very suspicious behavior like that. And they were doing high-tech stuff that made it hard to track, very deliberately taking steps to conceal what they were doing on the house servers. And now the biggest epicenter of the hack, as the IG identified, was a group called the House Democratic Caucus. That's the organizational body of the Democrats in the House. So that theoretically, all the Democrats belong to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have their own office with their own infrastructure. And in this case, the chairman of it was Javier Becerra. So it's got its own server. And um, that was they logged into that server like 6,000 times within a few months, way more than you would ever normally do. And they were funneling data off the House network, too. So the IG do, do, do we know where the files went to? So one of the things they were doing is they had Dropbox, and so that was uploading it to the cloud. And at that point, the files were it was an unofficial Dropbox account that was controlled, you know, by Imran Awan. It wasn't something the House could shut down because the House doesn't let you use Dropbox. So that was one way that they saw these files going off. So Debbie Wasserman Schultz, which most people know as the chairman of the DNC when it was hacked. Imran Awan was working as her IT guy in Congress since way back when she was just like a backbench member. And he kind of rose up along with her. And by the time that she was chairman of the DNC in 2016, he wasn't working for the DNC. But if you search his name on WikiLeaks, you can see that he was, you know, talking with the DNC. Uh, he basically had the password to Debbie Wasserman Schultz's iPad and the, the DNC would call him up if they needed access. He had more access to Wasserman Schultz's stuff than anyone else. But he worked for the House. And so we're talking about really two separate things here. There's the DNC hack and then there's this other hack in the House. They were detected at virtually the exact same time. So it's in June of 2016 when WikiLeaks hacks, uh, releases the first emails from the DNC. Three days later, the inspector general for the House of Representatives goes to the leadership, Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi, and says, I've, un- I've uncovered a hack in the House of Representatives. Uh, it's a really, really serious, has all the markings of nefarious acting, actions, and the one doing it was the IT aide for Debbie Wasserman Schultz. The inspector general has told 
the Republican, the Speaker of the House and the Democratic Leader of the House, what happens? Democrats tried to act like they had never really heard of any of this and they didn't really know what any of it was. That's not what the case was. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's general counsel, a guy named Bernie Ramos, screamed at the IG and said, you're not the policeman of the world. Uh, you're not going to investigate this stuff. You, you're not so much as to talk to any of these guys. You can't talk to any of the members. You can't look at their emails and you can't look at the data that was flying off the network. And he was really, really worked up about it, but they actively retaliated against, screamed at, and blocked the inspector general who was originally appointed by Nancy Pelosi. And then later on, Paul Ryan kept her on because she was so good at her job. And eventually what this culminated in is an operative for Nancy Pelosi um, falsely accused the IG of ethics violations and, and drove her out of the house. The inspector general actually is an expert in cyber activities. And the Capitol Police had no one who was an expert. And so the leadership of the House, for some bizarre reason, which we don't understand today, moves the authority for the investigation away from the woman who had done the work to the Capitol Police who couldn't possibly do the work. Right. So the Inspector General and her whole team, who's, you know, their mission is to do exactly this kind of thing. She is the chairman of the International Cybersecurity Experts Association. Uh, like you can't get any better cybersecurity investigator credentials than this woman had. And so for no reason, after she's trying to do her investigation, after Nancy Pelosi's people scream at her and block her, they, you know, basically frame her on ethics charges, they take the investigation away from her and they give it to the Capitol Police. And so that's kind of the sleight of hand here is that law enforcement should have meant the IG working with the prosecutors like they've done in so many previous cases. Uh, you can have the FBI involved. But instead, the Capitol Police is controlled by House leadership, and its mission is to protect Congress. And let me point out that as somebody who helped develop the Inspector General's role, uh, they are a branch of investigation. I mean, the Inspector General's job in every single federal agency is to have the authority to look to dig out things which seem to be potentially criminal, and then to turn them over to the Justice Department for prosecution. Uh, if they find enough evidence. I expect the Democrats to defend themselves. But the degree to which the Republicans were apparently totally asleep or willfully asleep or had amnesia or something is, is amazing to me. And this is a good example. What we're talking about is whether or not secrets are being hacked in a way which is a threat to national security uh, or, for that matter, just theft. They say, well, we're not going to look at the data. We know that data, and the presentation actually says it has sensitive file names. They let her look at the file names, but not see what's in the file. And so an example of a file that was being taken off the network illegally, or in violation of policy at least, was credentials. And it's not credible that anyone would have had that reaction. I believe that there's a remarkable story that's mostly covered up. When he's banned from Congress, and he's still sneaking around, though, with Debbie Wasserman Schultz's laptop, he's still got a backdoor into the House computer network. Meanwhile, everyone on Capitol Hill knew that the things that were going on were completely abnormal. So when these guys are banned from the network, they bring in, the House provides free IT guys to all the affected members. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz refuses to accept this free service, even though it costs her money. She won't let an outsider come look at what's on her network. Um, and Imran Wan is still on her payroll, even though he's banned. You know, they're just tasked with fixing it, getting things back into compliance with the House rules, and that's that. No documentation. And so they never had anyone come in and, and do an audit. So ultimately, the whole thing breaks down, and Imran is indicted for bank fraud. 
And how does that then, that only goes to court? You know, they knew about this since July of 2016. A year later, in July of 2017, he tries to go to Pakistan with 9000 bucks in his suitcase, and uh, he's arrested by the, by the FBI at Dulles Airport. Uh, so at that point, I said, all right, I've been selling everyone this for six months. He's going to be charged with hacking Congress and running a procurement scam. Uh, he wasn't charged with that. He was charged with wiring $300,000 to Pakistan, which actually went to a Pakistani police officer. Um, and so what happened is he went into the Congressional Federal Credit Union and told him that he had his dad died and he had a $300,000 funeral and he needed to wire money over to Pakistan. And to do that, they committed mortgage fraud. And so they got him for this small little thing. And even then, I said, all right, it's how they got Al Capone or whatever. You know, they often use pretextual charges to hold you for a minute while they continue to do the other investigation. So they charge him with this little mortgage fraud thing. Another year goes by. They keep delaying the court hearings. It's all very secretive. Nothing occurs in, in open court. They're trying to resolve this case, the serious charges, the ones, all the stuff we've been talking about behind the scenes uh, with a plea deal. And the DOJ never charges Imran Awan with any of this stuff, despite all the evidence we've talked about. And But yet they give him everything they have. Now, under the legal process, if you're charged with something, the prosecutors have to give you evidence you need to defend yourself. But he was never charged with the stuff, and yet they gave him everything, even though discovery didn't apply. And so, you know, a year goes by, there's all these things that are amply documented in ways that are really incontrovertible. And he's never charged. And it becomes clear that they don't want to take this case to trial. They never really interview anyone. His lawyer negotiates a deal. The deal doesn't just eliminate everything that mattered except uh, one case of, of uh, false representation on home equity. But the deal goes on to say in paragraph 8, the government, quote, the government has uncovered no evidence that your client violated federal law with respect to the house computer systems. Now, this is clearly a negotiated deal between the defense attorney and the Justice Department, despite all of the evidence that we've seen. Uh, and he's then sentenced to time served and three months of supervised probation. This is a case study in corruption. So you've given us a story that runs over 10 years, involves millions of dollars, 40 members of Congress, uh, the Democratic National Committee chair, and it ultimately comes down to one count of uh, home equity line credit application falsification and a three-month supervised probation. This is a case study in corruption and a case study in the kind of scandal uh, that, frankly, every citizen ought to be very bothered by because if the Congress can be penetrated by people at the level of information technology that we're seeing here, combined with the level of financial corruption, it's, it's the duality, then I think that there's a, a genuine threat to the entire system. When we come back, I'll be joined by Patrick Sowers, a former IT specialist in the U.S. House of Representatives. He'll give us an insider's perspective on the job Imran Awan held. My next guest is Patrick Sowers. If you don't mind, Patrick, 
Please introduce yourself and what your role was in the House. Hello, my name is Patrick Sowers. Uh, I worked on the Hill as an IT specialist for 14 years, a couple different capacities. I was there as a contractor. I was there as a staff member. I started on the Hill in 2004. Uh, After a few months, I became a shared staffer, worked for uh, probably 25 different members in my tenure there. Imran Awan uh, was also a shared uh, employee. He worked uh, mostly on the Democrat side uh, and saw him at meetings and uh, whenever the House required us to get together for education. So describe for me a bit more about how shared staffing works. The shared staffing program is actually an excellent idea. What it does is it gives members of Congress an access to a professional IT person at a fraction of the cost. Generally, offices would have to have assistance administrator in the office, and it was, hey, who wants the job? And instead of doing that, they actually get an IT professional. The IT professional, because he works for multiple offices, is able to make a good income, make a living while serving different offices. So it's kind of a win-win situation for both sides. Please explain for our listeners how individual congressmen can hire you. In order to defer cost, a member of Congress is a program. There's generally only two types of shared employees. Uh, Your finance person who handles your accounting for your office and your systems administration. There's also some times where uh, legislative staff will work across a committee or several different offices to share uh, share the burden of that expense to the member. And there's no one on the Hill that dictates which one of these options a member of Congress decides on? The House IT Department, HIR, um, sets up the rules, regulations, and requirements. But a member of Congress is free to hire anyone he wants to be on his staff. Explain to me what the HIR role is in Congress. What are they tasked with? Uh, HIR is the House IT Department. They manage the infrastructure for Capitol Hill. So the email systems, the, they currently do all of the data backup and those functionalities for the office, where if we go back 15 years ago, offices had servers in their each individual office, and then they had to have someone to maintain that. In order to save costs, the House IT Department brought that together into a one storage system, and it's divided out and secured for each individual office. They provide uh, they provide a a high level um, support for offices. They have a TSR technical support representatives that they provide to each member of Congress. But they can't get in and do the day-to-day work in the office. It's there. The staffing would be, have to be too high. You need that personal attention. And that's why the shared employee program is actually a good thing because it's a trusted member, someone the member puts their trust in. Uh, sometimes it's a good person, and if we're starting to learn, sometimes it's not always a good person. Um, but that gives the member the ability to hire someone that they have authority over. Um, if they relied strictly on HIR, the House IT department, to provide them services, there's no one advocating for what the member needs to the House. So you're told what programs you have access to. You're told that what systems are broken. And if you don't have an IT person who has their vested interest in you instead of the overall hill, it doesn't provide you the protection that you need. So give us an example. How would a newly sworn in congressman or congresswoman who doesn't know systems they're going to need, how would you come in and interact with them? Generally, a shared systems uh, administrator gets introduced to new members by the members they're currently working for. If you're on their team and they trust you, they know that they can recommend you to the freshman from their state or their delegation to, to get a good service, someone they can trust. 
Now, I was, you know, I did the job for almost 14 years on the Hill. So I knew the ins and outs of all the softwares, all of the services that you needed. Uh, you know, even what cell phones worked best in what parts of the city and what parts of the country became my responsibility as a shared systems person. So you'd make recommendations on software, on decisions, on IT policies and use for staff in the office, you know, what they can and can't do. The House has rules, but then the member wants to go above and beyond that. One of the, you know, the biggest things we advise them on is their email communication. A member's email is protected by congressional privilege as long as they use their official email. Well, if you're communicating on a Gmail system or another public system, now those are foyable documents that could actually be called in for testimony. But the congressional emails are protected? Congressional email is protected under the congressional privilege. It seems like they have several securities in place. In the environment in which we live today, where every single thing, we, even my microwave at home, is connected to the internet. So in an environment like that, HIR has a mountain to climb, and they do a good job climbing that in most cases. You know, I, I, in, in the 14 years I was there, I, I don't think I disagreed with them on very many things that they did in a security standpoint. Uh, they do a good job of addressing that, um, but there's, you know, there's holes in every system, and it's their job to identify those as quickly as possible. So the other interesting aspect of this story that's perplexing is the whole combining of invoices. The fact that Imran Awan ordered approximately $28,000 worth of equipment and put them all in at $499 so they wouldn't be tracked. Can you explain the whole process of equipment ordering, the financial threshold, and the tracking? The House has a purchasing department, and a member office submits their purchase orders to that department, and they're followed. Um, last I checked, the, the cap was $499, that it didn't have to be listed on your inventory. So you could order you know, an iPad, uh, a camera, um, cell phones, usually fell into that category, a monitor. It's, you know, back in the day, they used to track every single monitor. Well, monitors are almost disposable now. You can get a, a very nice monitor for $100. So it's now, you know, items like that, that it is just not worth the time and effort to track those small items are supposed to fall into that 499 threshold. Anything above that has to go through, have a house asset tag put on it and is inventoried. And the member is actually responsible for that equipment until it's disposed of. In your 14 years of experience, were you ever asked to make sure purchase orders for items like iPads or phones came in at or below $499 because a member of Congress or their staff requested it? Not once. Literally not once. It was easier for us as administrators to buy small items when they were less than. So if an item was, you know, $502. We went back to the vendor and said, hey, can, can we get it for $499? Um, because it just made our jobs easier. We could actually order it without going through the procurement process. Um, but items that were, you know, computers, value, copiers, things like that, no, they had to go through the procurement process. And there was never a, a fudging of numbers to, to make that work. And how time consuming is the procurement process? It's, it's a little time-consuming. As we all know, government has red tape, and there are folks there that have a job to do. 
Um, you know, you have to go out and get a quote for the item, which is always a best practice. We generally get uh, two or three quotes until you get some vendors that you can trust. And then you have to take that, provide a purchase order, submit that purchase order, um, comes back, and then you have to go through asset tagging and things after that. So it's it's not a, a cumbersome process, but it is a little time consuming. And you know, if you have an immediate need, um, having that threshold is, is great. If something breaks, a monitor breaks, and you have a user who just can't use their computer without a monitor, it's great to be able to, to have a local vendor get that item quick and replace it. One of the interesting facets of the Imran Awan story is the pulling together of items for a massive procurement of $28,000. Explain to me how, in your experience, an order that large didn't have to go through the procurement process. You could buy several items under the $499 category, but if one single item went over $499, then it had to go through the procurement process. So as a member of Congress, I could buy 50 iPads? At $499? You could buy 50 iPads at $499, but that would have to be signed off by the chief of staff. You can't just place that order. The chief of staff for each individual office has to approve. There has to be a member's signature on every purchase. So, in these allegations against Awan, the chiefs of staff of these individual congressional offices were signing off on these purchase orders or invoices. According to House rules, they needed to be signed off by the member. The chief of staff generally is, has the ability to make to make that decision and signature, but every order that goes through every purchase is approved by the office. So it's not possible for someone to go out and spend $28,000 on equipment and the office not know about it. It hits their budget. It's reviewed by, their, at a minimum, their financial person and their chief of staff is reviewing that budget as every item comes through. And can congressional offices combine their orders? Absolutely not. Each individual member has their own budget. They place their own orders for their own equipment. Okay, so knowing what we know now about Imran Awan's case, how would it be possible for him to order that volume of equipment unchecked? It is, it, it's impossible for it to happen unchecked. Someone knew that money was spent. If, a, if it came out of a member's budget, someone in that office knows that that money was spent and what it should have been spent on. At one point, we learned that Imran Awan had rented his primary residence to a tenant who found a box full of IT materials in his garage, which raised the question in the press of how they could have gotten there. And it was reported that because of house security and the delivery of IT equipment, you would sometimes ship items to your home. What is the house protocol on that? Anything that's shipped directly into the house has to go through the house mail system and go through testing for chemical warfare and things like that and dangerous materials. So if you needed, you know, if you, again, if you needed a piece of equipment in a timely manner, you could ship it to um, an off-site location, to a FedEx office or something like that, and then a staff member would be permitted to carry that onto campus. Um, so it's not, a, not an uncommon practice, especially in time-sensitive needs, that you would have something shipped, $28,000 worth of stuff. Uh, you need a truck to carry that, and that's not going in the uh, backseat of your car. How is it that Imran Awan was able to employ several of his family members who were inexperienced in IT services to work with him in the house? Well, it is against house policy to pay someone to do your job. So a legislative assistant couldn't hire a writer to write their documents for them. A systems administrator can't hire another systems administrator to do their job for them. And in all intents and purposes, that appears to be what the Awans were doing. Uh, you had a, a qualified IT person, maybe one or two of the brothers, but then you know the third brother, the wife, whoever else that they brought in, um, I, don't, I don't know if they even actually came to the Hill to do any work. And, you know, that's, you know, I, I'm not the one to judge that, but 
there's no feasible way that you would uh, that you'd have that many people in the same family working across lines like that. That's uh, highly inappropriate. And how did it go undetected? Again, a member of Congress has the ability to hire anyone they want to be on their staff member. There is no background checks um, because they'd have to background check every staff member they hired, which is would be a big expense to the government that's unnecessary. The members should be doing the vetting and hiring people that they trust. Um, you know, I had members of Congress that, you know, I, I had access to their personal financial information because they trusted me that much. You know, I was working on their computer and their, their checkbooks open on there. Yeah, hey, don't worry about it, just close that window. So there's a level of trust that's there. Um, I know one of the big issues that came up was about uh, Imran having uh, Debbie Washerman Schultz's password. Very common practice with a shared employee. Uh, members are, are, are traveling. Some of them are not tech-savvy individuals. And having one or two shared or trusted staffers in the office that have that password is a, is a very valuable thing with working with some members. So this whole notion of a trusted person, yet no one is doing background checks or even necessarily vetting members of their own staff. We're under the impression that every shared employee or IT employee, for that matter, Anybody working in Congress would have background checks. The congressman has a right to fill his staff with whoever he sees fit. Um, presumably, it's people from his district or other known quantities um, of an individual that they can trust. Um, there are security checks in place. The average you know, uh, LA or LC, legislative assistant or legislative correspondent, doesn't have access to the files of any other staffer in the office. It's sectioned off so that you have access to your section of documents and other people don't. But then as you increase in staff level, the legislative director can obviously, the legislative director can obviously see the documents of all the LAs below them. And then the chief of staff can obviously see everything in the office, every email sent in and out by every staffer they have access to. And that's not through a shared drive? That's just generally if they need to look at what you're doing, they can see it easily? Yeah, absolutely. There's got to be checks and balances in any organization as, you know, the, the, Chief of staff is basically, you know, the president of a company, if you want to look at it that way. And they need to have checks and balances at every level below them. So they need to have access to that information. You know, if there's something ever called into questions ethics wise, they need to be able to go back and look at that and not necessarily let the, the lower, level, lower level staffer know that it's being looked at. So what you're implying here is he didn't hack anybody. He had access. Back in October of 2004, when I started on the Hill, the House was actually already moving towards a shared server environment. Um, there were still offices that had there's still offices that had servers in their office, but it was a dinosaur and they were going away. There was a trust issue. You know, you were used to having your data in your office, and now you were handing it over to the Hill to to watch over it for you. Um, but it's you know it's a very cost effective way to manage data, uh, and it's a it's a good use of taxpayer money. With that being said, the security that's in place, each individual member has their own section of the server. It is secured. It is monitored. So only people that have rights to access that data can get to that data. There's no hacking across lines. It is an internal environment that's not open to the outside. So anybody that was in there was granted access by someone to be in each individual section. So as a, a, a shared staff member working for eight different members, I would have access into eight different sections of that server, one for each member of Congress. So if you were working for 25, 30 different offices, along with your brothers and your wife, you would have access to 25 or 30 different sections of the server. Now, not just member data is there. Each caucus, 
each committee has it will have a section of that server space as well. Um, but I, I fully trust that the house IT department is secured and monitored. Uh, the folks they have uh, managing that system, every keystroke they make on their keyboard is recorded. So there's no chance that a, a rogue IT person is, is hacking into that. It's intentional access that's intentionally given. The one other question, which you really have nicely just answered, is can it be hacked from the outside? Anything is possible. Um, these systems are accessible not only in D.C., but back in the state. So, you know, IT, it's possible. The House has more than one security. And, of course, I can't comment on what they are, but they have one more than one firewall security protocol in place to prevent that from happening. The the odds on this being hacked are extremely slim. Number one, there's no financial data there at all. There's personal information about constituents who are having casework done, but there's there's no financial gain. There's no real embarrassment there uh, to hack into this sort of data. So I, I don't see a huge fear in that. There was an, uh, a contractor to the Hill probably about eight years ago. Their server got hacked. Um, but theirs, it was controlled by the contractor, and the House took immediate action against that contractor uh, to make sure that their IT, process, uh, their IT infrastructure came up to the House standard and patched whatever hole it was left. And they, they paid a, a dire consequence for not being secure. Okay. So the other perplexing thing about this case is the IG comes out with their report and says, subject matter urgent. We know that there's some invasion on our servers here in the house. You need to get rid of these five people ASAP. And then you fast forward, and that was, I believe, February of 2017. And then July 3rd, 2018. There's a plea agreement, and Section 8 of the plea agreement clearly states that the government says no. Nothing went wrong. Tell me, if you can, a little about the IG report when it first came out. The IG sent out a notice to all members of Congress that there had been a breach um, there had been some sort of malfeasance committed by a group of people. There had to be evidence, and it's my understanding that they had been watching them for a period of time to know that something had occurred. Then to have a year or more later to have them come back and say, nothing to see here is impossible. If you know the, the FBI misses things every once in a while, but you don't suspend access to the servers, you don't just all of a sudden decide this person has done something and then come back we know things occurred. We know that we were told the, da the terabyte of data. We know we were told about the breaches to the systems, the unauthorized access, the access from foreign countries to the system. So knowing those things, for them to come back and say, nothing to see here is a slap in the face of every intelligent person. They should. The, the only acceptable outcome would have been, these are the things they did wrong and this is what we're going to do about it. The other outcome is we've done further investigation, and yes, these things were done. These were against House policy, House security policy, and there were violations, but nothing reached the point of a criminal charge. That would have been an acceptable statement to me as an intelligent IT individual. But to, to stack up all the evidence, go through everything you went through with the investigation, and to say nothing to see here, uh, that, that's not acceptable to me. And when the IG report comes out and they ask every member of Congress to reconsider having the Awans in their employ, all but one member of Congress fires them the day the IG report comes out. Yeah, all but one member of Congress, uh, as, as, I've, as I understand, all but one member of Congress removed them from staff. Um, that member chose to keep them on. They did not have systems administration access. The House had suspended their right to have that. So what services they were continuing to provide, I don't know, because they didn't have access to do that. 
So one, they weren't providing any service, or two, they were doing it against house IT policy by someone else obtaining those credentials and allowing him to use them. And just to be 100% clear, every time you log on as a systems administrator to the individual member of Congress's server that triggers HIR to track, you've logged on at this day and time, and you've done the following things. It's always tracked when every, anyone logs into the network. You log in, you log out. What applications did you access while you were logged in? That is tracked when anybody logs in. Uh, administrators, every time they make a change to anything, file access, user permissions, emails, that is tracked. What they did, when they did it, and you know how it happened. So if you go in, I can go in and give myself access as an administrator to anyone's email box and look at their emails. Well, that needs to be tracked. So if I'm going in and granting permissions, that needs to be known. Hey, how did someone know about this email? It's in my private box. Well, then they can go back to the log and see that. So there's not a police state where someone is sitting there and just watching every administrator as they log in. But if something was to occur, there would be a log to go back and look at. What policies have changed? Talking to several friends who are still shared employees up there, the communication between house IT and the shared staff has increased. I want to say there was an animosity between the two groups, but there was there was never a, a cohesive time where they worked together. And I think that's dramatically changed since the, the Enron Awan scandal. Um, it's given HIR um, a reason to communicate more other than it's, you know, than a good reason. It was there's a security reason. We need to get more involved with these folks and understand them better. As far as working with them on policy changes, uh, I'm hearing there's a lot more communication back and forth. They're taking a lot more input from the people who are in the office every day doing things to, you know, we implemented this new policy. It's affecting you. How? Well, how can we adapt it so that it's still secure yet gives you the freedom to do your job? Thank you, Patrick. Next, I'll talk with Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas. He was one of the first voices in Congress to ask for more information about the Awans and the details of their breach. And he was stonewalled. That story next. The Westwood One Podcast Network, The Daily Wire's Ben Shapiro Show. Whenever Republicans make a mistake, it's never Democrats pounce as Republicans as Republicans reel. It's never Democrats pouncing. But Republicans pounce has become such a meme that people on the right know that as soon as Democrats do something bad, there will be a bevy of articles about Republicans pouncing. The Ben Shapiro Show. Download and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and the Westwood One Podcast app. Free, free from the Westwood One Podcast Network. I'm pleased to introduce Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas. He is one of the leading voices requesting more information about the Awans and the possible breach. Congressman, how did you first hear about Imran Awan and his activities in the House? I'd heard a rumor that there was a breach of our congressional computer system, the House, and that it was probably just Democrats. We weren't sure, but probably just Democrats, uh, that they had an IT or a computer professional that was working for many of the Democrats. But I asked for a briefing. I asked for information on it because it didn't seem that Speaker Ryan or really anybody was all that concerned about it. I was very concerned. So we got a, a, a briefing. It was set up for a specific time and place and any 
Republican members that were interested could come because it was arranged through the speaker. And we had the um, the chairman of the House um, Administrative Committee. We had the chief counting officer for the House and his deputy. And there was a lot of talk for a good while about it. But there was no real information about what had happened, and that gave me great concern. You know, I have been a prosecutor before. I have been a felony judge before, a chief justice of an intermediate court of appeals. And, you know, I I just wasn't used to having people give me information that was vague, ambiguous, and was not full of facts. It was just kind of the runaround. Can you describe for our listeners how they were vague? Well, like what kind of breach was there? Who did it? And we got we did get information on who was involved. Imran Awan was the, um, we were told, the IT specialist that had started like 14 years ago, something like that. But around 2005, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, as a computer specialist for a Democrat and others started hiring him and they kept adding people and that uh, there was a group of IT specialists that were working for 40 or so Democrats. But that was about as specific as it got. And I was wanting to know more, you know, what kind of breaches, what what kind of investigation? Is there any outside information or any outside entities that have gotten information through these people? And there just were terribly inadequate answers just in general. Well, we don't think there is any major problem. We don't think that this uh, is, has compromised our system. We don't think that uh, any crime was committed. That's what I mean by being vague. And like I said, I've made presentations to a grand jury before, and that's not the kind of information you give. If there was potential for a crime, you ask the questions, you get specific answers, and not just, well, we don't think this was a problem. That's not an adequate answer. What kinds of things were you hearing that piqued your interest and made you want to request a briefing? There was someone that had been hired by some of the Democrats, who, one or more, who may have possibly breached our computer system of more than just the Democrats. And uh, there may have been, you know, illegal activity, just that kind of thing, just enough to, to well, if that's a possibility, what have we found out? What's the determination? and was shocked when there were nothing but vague answers. Well, we don't think this has occurred. Well, how did you investigate? Well, you know, we don't want to get too specific because it is an ongoing investigation. Well, that's what the FBI often does to keep from answering specific questions. Well, there's an ongoing investigation. And we were assured that this was ongoing. It was very thorough. And it was quite some time before we found out It may have been ongoing, but it was anything but thorough. And then, when January came around, what happened? Well, in January, as I understand it, the inspector general was investigating, and 
compiled a great deal of information and this didn't this did not come out in that initial briefing we got that i was saying i thought was very unsatisfactory uh, without any real specifics there absolutely had to have been crimes committed under federal law if you knowingly falsify any document uh, procurement document that is a felony crime under federal law and we were understanding that um, Imran, Awan, or family members, that they were aware that if you make a purchase of anything on behalf of a member of the House of Representatives and it costs more than $500, you have to specifically get down the serial number and that item is kept in your inventory. And if that item ever disappears, somebody is supposed to be made to account. If I mean, like we've had a couch that somebody probably in the 80s lost the couch. We have no idea where it went. They probably just moved it out of their office. But we have not been allowed to write off that couch, even though it hadn't probably been around for 30 years. They said, no. And so when I'm hearing there have been purchases of iPads that cost around $798 and there were procurement documents prepared by either Imran or somebody in his family, one of his workers, to say it cost $498, well, that seems to be pretty clear. They're trying to get under the requirement of keeping the serial number which would then allow you to take those items and sell them and nobody would have be able to account for where what was specifically purchased with the serial number and where it specifically went. Let's talk about the three things that Imran Awan and his family are accused of. One is dummying the invoices so they don't have to be tracked with a barcode through the IT system. So let me ask you about that for a second, because Patrick Sowers, who also held an IT specialist position similar to Imran Awan, explains that it's up to the member of the House who hires their shared employee to discover or decide on running a background check on them. Background checks are supposed to be done um, for IT specialists. The exception is if you work for multiple members of Congress, then another member of Congress can sign a form saying, you know, this individual works for multiple members of Congress, and so a background check is not necessary in this particular case. Well, the reason a member of Congress is allowed to sign that, the reasoning is that they've already had a background check from some other member of Congress, and this person also works for others, so every single member of Congress shouldn't have to get a background check on an IT specialist when it's already been done. But in the case of the Awans, they got the forms signed saying that it's not necessary, but nobody ever did one. So that policy has been clarified, as I understand it, so that there has to be one now. But in his case, his family's case, his employees' cases, it apparently wasn't done. I think one of the main questions 
is that there is a house IT department. Why wouldn't they hold and maintain these background checks so the member of Congress could just call them directly and say, hey, is this guy good? Well, that's a very logical question, and that would be a very logical thing to do. I guess you and I shouldn't be surprised that logic has no place here in the House of Representatives. So that was not done. And nobody had that we're aware of ever had a background check done because once the digging commenced by Luke um, and that was following the investigation by our IG, then come to find out there are things that should have scared anyone doing a background check. And the way the background check works, and it's true in our intelligence agencies, but anything that an individual would want to keep private and not want anybody to know if such a thing exists in their background, then that would be potential fertile ground for compromising someone who is in a secure position as Imran Awan was. That's our intelligence officers say, we look if somebody's having an affair, if there's something about their lives they don't want constituents or others in public to know, then we that scares us. This person could be compromised, a foreign country or some element, uh, unsavory element in our country might find out about it, use it to blackmail the individual to get to secured information. Things like bankruptcy are still a matter of concern because if you're on in tough economic situations such that you'd have to file bankruptcy, then perhaps uh, somebody could um, either blackmail you or bribe you easily. It might make you more vulnerable to a bribe if you're in terrible financial situations. So uh, when we found out that there was a bankruptcy in the past, then we went, holy cow, that surely showed up in the background check. And then we found out, well, no, because there was not a background check that anybody could find. So it is your understanding that House policy has changed on that since Imran Awan. My understanding is that because of Imran Awan and his family, that there has to be a background check. You can't just have everybody for whom the specialist works sign the same form saying one's not needed. Somebody has to have already done a background check before you can waive it in other offices. As a former prosecutor, what is the most shocking thing about this whole story to you? Everything. I mean, I'm sorry. It's just every step along the way. The fact that we would have a speaker that was apprised that our system was potentially breached and the response is, well, let's sit on it for a number of months until after an election. The election should not have had anything to do with it. The, the response appropriately from anybody using their sense, and that's a presumption that they have some, but you would say, we've got to get to the bottom of this now. This is too important to worry about the election. Let's find out if a foreign country, a foreign government is having access to our information. And we saw what the Democrats have made alleging that Russia had hacked the DNC computer system. 
so that was another shocking thing when WikiLeaks had released information, exchanges of communications between Democrats. There was something like, um, you know, we need to get into Debbie Wasserman Schultz system at the computer at the DCCC um, or the DNC, I guess. Yeah, the DNC. She was chair and response was, in essence, well, Imran has all that information. Why don't you contact him? And so then it was particularly alarming to know, find out apparently he was not paid by the DNC, but he was doing work for them. But he was being paid by Congress for these multiple Democrats he was working for. And then to see another independent uh, report that the information that was downloaded from the DNC system probably could not have been done over the Internet. That would have been too slow. There was so much information downloaded, it would have had to have been somebody doing it internally. That was one indication we'd seen from an article. So um, don't know if that was true, but that was one of the reports. So if that were true, then obviously that was an inside job. And if it's an inside job, who had access? Well, Imran did. I don't know whether it's him or somebody else. Some people have tried to say it was a young man that, that was killed, but I don't know. But it certainly should have been investigated. And the fact that the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, would not even allow the FBI to review their hard drive, to do an investigation hands-on with their system, also caused me great concern and also was rather surprising. There just there were just so many aspects of this. You go, what? They're not even going to let the FBI take a look at their system? Uh, they surely want to know how this got breached. But I was wrong about that. Their narrative was the Russians did it, and they didn't want anything interrupting that narrative. Thank you, Congressman Gohmert. Thank you. As we study the plea agreement Imran Awan signed, there's a paragraph in the plea, paragraph 8, that exempts Imran Awan of any wrongdoing in Congress. Was the plea deal outcome a cover-up to protect many powerful members of Congress? We may never know the truth, but I invite you to take a closer look at this case on our show page at newtsworld.com and decide for yourself. Thanks for listening. Thank you to my guests, Luke Rosiak, Patrick Sowers, and Congressman Louis Gohmert. You can see the books, articles, and documents that we relied on in researching this episode on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please subscribe to Newt's World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get entertaining podcasts. On the next episode of Newt's World, we'll meet three incredibly talented doctors who are on the cutting edge of medical breakthroughs using gene therapy. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free ever thought about owning a piece of history introducing the newt gingrich contract with america coin from legacy precious metals my limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic republican victory in 1994 marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com.